And welcome, welcome, Saturday, Saturday. We're here. We got one more of these to go before we get into the Christmas break. So we'll make it a we'll make it a good one. The phone lines again are always open. John Skulls here hosting along with my uh, my good pals, the experts, James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP is where they <coughs> pardon me, where they're from. That was interesting. I feel like Doug Ford. Um, you can call here anytime and uh, talk to us if you got some time today. Take a break from the mall. It's already madness, man. I got family that's out there and they're ready to pull their hair out. Uh, 416-872-1010 to call into the station. 71010 to text. And if you want to send along an email, which we have plenty of already, no problem. Help at disabilityrights.ca. But we always start off, guys, with the week that was. I think uh, tomorrow you're going first. What do you got, friend? I shall. And I'm thinking about, you know, taking out and going out shopping tomorrow, but maybe I shouldn't. Uh, and uh, instead, I'll be talking about disability law, which is my my second favorite thing after shopping. So I, <laughs> I had an interesting call yesterday, gents, that I thought we would start off the show talking about because it it really does go to the core of what is total disability of own occupation. And so I was speaking with this woman and her husband, and she described for me, in essence, mold exposure that's resulting in symptoms that she has, or it it could be mold exposure. They, They actually don't know what the cause is, but this is what she's been experiencing anytime she goes in any public setting. And this includes her workplace. She develops a whole host of symptoms, including um, gastric issues, bowel issues, headaches, fatigue, a a whole host of things. And she actually has had a battery of tests, and and those tests are ongoing, by the way, to try and figure out what's going on. All she knows is that every time she was going to workplace, perhaps a doctor's office even, shopping center it didn't matter she was she would have these reactions and these reactions sometimes would um, persist for days afterwards even with over-the-counter medication to treat the one symptom there still was lingering symptoms otherwise but of course they can't put their finger on what is causing it and why and so her doctor submitted in the package for disability benefits an indication that said, look, these symptoms when they're coming on are disabling her. She cannot be working. But perhaps the answer, at least in the short term, is that she work from home. Her employer resisted this work from home option. And the insurer, the disability insurer, also denied the disability benefits, saying, look, you could be accommodated. This is a work setting issue. You know, you could be working from home. And frankly, when you're not symptomatic, you're fine. And so we don't think that you're totally disabled from your own occupation. The thing was with her occupation, one component of it was that it was a client facing role. So there were some things that she could do from home, but there were other elements of her work in essence because it was client facing where she actually had to meet people and and be in person and actually be in the work setting and in fact even when we were having provincial shutdowns she said you know look i never really worked from home i was still this is before she became unwell she was still actually meeting clients and and physically going into to her work setting so i thought this was a really interesting profile because the courts have really made clear that you don't really need a why for disability benefits to be approved. The cause of all of these symptoms is not necessarily the thing that the insurance company can say as a good basis to deny benefits. In fact, the question really is, is that are the symptoms as a constellation of symptoms, physical, obviously there was underlying mental health conditions as well, all of this together, 
you know, is it sufficiently disabling such that this individual is not capable of doing the essential duties of her occupation? And in my view, yes. I, I, you know, I really felt compelled with her situation. Look, we've talked about other medical information she might need, and, and we spent a long time during our consultation going through the different permutations of this. You know, could there be an employment avenue? Is there most definitely a disability avenue? Absolutely. But I think that what I didn't like was this fallback that I think insurers are doing throughout this post-COVID world, that working from home is the answer. And therefore, it must mean that they don't have to pay disability benefits. And I think it is a case-by-case analysis. But in this situation, in my mind, it's very compelling that in her situation, she should have actually been paid disability benefits, regardless of the you know employer's resistance to the accommodation and the work-from-home element. But I'm curious, because this is a bit of a hot button, I'm curious what James's thoughts are on this kind of setting and profile and this idea, right, that this is these disability insurers are saying, working from home is the solution, we don't have to pay benefits in situations like this. Well, I think it's a really interesting scenario because it does lead into the employment side of things to a certain mm-hmm. extent, more than a lot of uh, the the cases that we're presented with are, because what we're dealing with is whether or not there are reasonable accommodations that can be made. And I think that is really a dividing line and that, you know, cases like this are where you really need to have expertise in both disability law and employment law, because there are scenarios where there are occupations that you could do from home and perhaps the employer is not accommodating when they really ought to when there is a reasonable basis to do it. And, you know, question whether in that scenario, whether the employer is just refusing to do what they reasonably ought to, if an insurer would in that scenario be uh, incorrect if they denied benefits, I don't know that they would. But in this particular case, when we're talking about an occupation where very clearly you're not able to do it at home, there is an essential part of the occupation that cannot be done remotely then that's a scenario where the employer can quite correctly say, no, we can't accommodate. This is a job that requires you to be client-facing or whatever the requirements are of the particular occupation. If it reasonably cannot be done remotely, then it's on the insurer, and that's quite correct. But there is an analysis that does need to be done in those scenarios. And if you are uh, you know, if you have a lawyer that doesn't understand that, if you have a disability lawyer without an understanding of the employment side of things, then that may not be well understood. And there are different scenarios where that's going to be applied differently. But in this particular case, I quite agree. I mean, it, you know, this is something that is on the insurer and it's something that they need to respond to. It's you know not something that can reasonably be accommodated. I do have uh, one thing that I wanted to discuss. It's not really so much a week that was, but it is something that we touched on a little bit uh, when we were doing the TV show quite recently. And I thought it'd be useful to discuss in a broader sense, mental health claims. We obviously talk about mental health claims all the time, but we often look at it in a more granular sense. We're looking at the details of the particular person who is contacting us and how the the law is applied in those scenarios. And I think a, a bit broader discussion might be warranted every now and then, because I think on a broad level, I think a lot of people still don't accept or understand that disability benefits, when you have long or short-term disability benefits, 
those do not require a physical disability. Mental health disabilities are absolutely part of disability benefits, whether you have a physical disability or not. And that is something that people still misunderstand. There are just a lot of people out there that are suffering from depression, anxiety, PTSD, or other mental health conditions that do not understand that they have disability benefits that would allow them to be able to take a leave of absence from work and be able to get the help they need and get the benefits that they require in order to survive while that's happening. And that is absolutely the case. I've seen very few policies that have any exclusion for mental health, and they're almost always personal policies that are quite unusual. But if you have a group disability policy, I would be shocked if a mental health condition was not covered. So that's first and foremost. You need to understand that mental health issues are certainly a part of disability benefits. You know, there are other things too, though, that need to be understood because certainly if you know, people who have mental health disabilities are often hesitant to ask for help, that is something that we have certainly seen historically. I think in recent years, it is something that as a, as a society and our culture, it has become less of a stigma to ask for help for mental health, but it is still out there. And there are definitely people that are still hesitant to ask for help to acknowledge that they need it in those circumstances. And I'm by no means going to start uh, you know, pretending that I have any expertise in this area. But I will say, if this is something that you're suffering from, ask for help, please. Please you know, talk to your family physician, ask for help, see what resources are available. And if you have a condition that is preventing from being able to work, then know that if you have disability insurance, then it is certainly something that you can apply for. And if your condition is sufficiently disabling, then it's something that you're entitled to receive benefits for as well. It's not like a physical injury where you're going to be able to show, you know, an x-ray of a broken bone per se. And that's not at all required. The courts have said that time and time again. Mental health claims are by their nature subjective. And so it is a function of what you are experiencing and how that is impacting you. And that's fine. That is something that you are absolutely entitled to receive benefits for. Now, keep in mind that even though we have come quite a long way over the last 10, 15 years, it's not at the point where it should be. We're not at a point where applying for mental health disability is exactly the same as applying for a physical disability. I wish it were, but it's not. There are unfortunately probably going to be more roadblocks than there ought to be. And you're going to, on occasion, run into insurance adjusters that are just not uh, understanding about what is happening or are intentionally obtuse about your situation. If that happens, you have the disability, and you are running into roadblocks if they are treating you unfairly. That's what we're here for. So give us a call, whatever stage you are in the process. If you have questions, if you need help, please give us a call. That's what we're here for. We're happy to give you any guidance you need, and there's no charge at all for the call. You can reach out to Tamar James anytime, guys, when the show's not around, of course, 1-855-821-5900. We'll slide into a quick break and start down the road of your emails. They're coming in. Send one along. Do not hesitate. Answers at employmentlawyer.ca. Answers at employmentlawyer.ca. Actually, you're going to use help at disabilityrights.com. They all funnel into the same place. Uh, beyond that, phone call 416-872-1010. Phone lines are quiet, but they're open. 416-872-1010. And text if you prefer. That 
That is 71010. Going to keep it rolling here on the Saturday edition of Disability Law Show. Continues on the Bell Talk Radio Network. And welcome back to it. 120 on Saturday. John Scholes here. James Fireman tomorrow. Gopian as well. Ready to keep rolling. Got some uh, calls coming through. We're just getting them all organized and cleaned up. In the meantime, back to uh, some email. By the way, you want to call the show, you got time. 416-872-1010. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, at least, guys, our first email says, uh, my LTD disability company referred me to a rehab consultant for my disorder. Without my doctor's knowledge, they have placed a plan to return to work even though I won't be ready mentally. Uh, I'm being forced to do therapy even though I have my own treatment plan. Do I legally have to do this therapy? Thanks, says Elise. What do you think, guys? Yeah, so Elise, unfortunately, I mean legally. So look, disability law is really based on what your disability policy says. And so most disability policies will have a section that say, look, we'll pay you know, LTD benefits will pay it provided you meet the test and provided that you meet all these other terms and conditions. And one of the terms and conditions typically included in these disability plans and policies is something around appropriate treatment and or rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So if the insurer says, look, we think that you should go through this rehab plan. And at the outset of that, we think, frankly, that we're going to put you back to work, then if the policy says you have to participate, then you have to participate, unfortunately. I mean, look, there are some limits in the sense that if the rehabilitation plan that's being proposed is either not reasonable or you're finding that you're through the plan and it's starting to set you back from a progress or health perspective, perhaps exacerbating or aggravating conditions, whether physical, mental health or otherwise, then, you know, I do think there's a reasonable basis to say to your doctor, look, can you prepare a medical note? Just explain what's happening to me from a health perspective to the insurance company. Perhaps that will dissuade the insurer from continuing on this path of insisting on this rehab plan. But I think that just by virtue of the fact that Elise feels not ready, unfortunately, I don't know if that's going to be enough to push the insurer back to say, look, I'm not going to participate in this rehab plan. At the end of it, though, I mean, John and James knows this too. Look, I think at the end of it, though, if she does participate in the rehab plan and the insurer says, you know, we think that you are ready to return back. And in fact, she's not medically well enough to do so. Absolutely. That's the point where you want your doctors to rally and include something by way of medical information to the insurer to say, but our opinion is that she's not. And I think that one of two things will happen. Either the insurance company will revisit its decision to close out the claim, unlikely, but they could. Or alternatively, they're going to cut off the claim regardless. But the last thing I want to see happen is Elise puts herself back into a work setting when she's not actually given the green light by her own doctors to do so. It's a tough situation. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna mince words about that. Very, very difficult situation. But at the end of the day, you do want to follow your own medical team's advice, both as it relates to treatment and as it relates to the timeliness about a return back to work. Because, you know, think of a situation when you actually do go back to work, if you are a lease and you go sooner than you think, and it's premature and you fall back into a position where you frankly cannot continue again, then you're going to want to go back to the insurer and say, hey, are you going to start my benefits again? And and most policies have a recurrence clause it's absolutely fair that you've made that attempt and the attempt was not successful. And therefore, it stands to reason that you should be able to continue getting your benefits again. But in my experience, you get a lot of resistance from the insurers in a situation like that. 
And so I'd much prefer that people follow their own medical team's advice on the readiness of a return and make that attempt when you think that it will be successful, as opposed to balking at or you know, basically capitulating to the pressure of the insurance company to essentially push you back before you're ready, just so that they can close out your claim and not continue to have to pay that benefit. James, what do you think? Nope. Maybe we've got James on mute. John. Maybe we got James on mute. Maybe James can unmute himself. I don't know if no, I can I... do that. Oh, there he is. And we're back. There we go. Yeah, it's uh, it's like I've never done this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that concerns me about Elisa's situation is that she already has a treatment plan in place. And I'm understanding that to mean that she is already going to see, I think it's a mental health issue that we're talking about. So she's probably already going to see a psychologist or psychotherapist or perhaps a psychiatrist for treatment. And the insurer is saying, well, you know, you have to do this. Now, there are situations where that might be warranted, where, you know, perhaps someone is suffering from a particular mental health issue, and it may be reasonable to suggest a particular type of mental health treatment that isn't being provided. And it's not unreasonable in those scenarios for an insurer to say, well, you're not getting, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy if that is appropriate in the situation and that would help you or we or you know our, our, our medical consultant says that it would help you. well in that scenario perhaps if you're not getting a particular kind of treatment then it's reasonable to at least for, for them to ask for it and if your doctors don't disagree then they're probably warranted in doing it but i don't know that that's a scenario here and where i certainly don't agree that the insurer has any basis to do anything is if they're just saying that they want you to use their type of their treatment provider who's providing the same type of therapy as the treatment provider that you already have and that you've chosen yourself that they can't they can't come in and say no no you have to get treatment from our person if it's the same type of treatment if it is something different then you're going to want to talk to your own treatment providers and see whether or not what the insurer is proposing is reasonable if it is then you're probably going to have to go through with it if it isn't, then you've got to then you've got to decide what is going to be in your best interest. It may be something that isn't warranted, but is perhaps not especially harmful. And if that's the scenario, I think probably you're going to decide to go through with it anyway, because as soon as you say no, they're going to cut you off. They may not be warranted in doing it, but they're going to cut you off, and you're probably going to want to prolong your benefits as long as possible. On the other hand, if your own treatment providers are telling you that what your insurer is requiring you to do is not only unnecessary, but is actually going to be harmful to you. Is you know perhaps just there to temporarily improve your symptoms sufficiently to force you back to work, but is actually going to make your overall situation worse. Or if even going down the road to return to work is inappropriate at this point in time and it's going to make you worse, then you can't do it. If your doctors are telling you that what the insurer is requiring of you is actually going to be harmful to your health then you can't do it you have to you know understand that it's going to almost certainly lead to your insurer cutting off your benefits but if they decide to do that then you give us a call and we start the legal claim now before all that happens though when you show what the insurer is proposing to your own treatment team what you want is for your doctors to comment on that you want to have your doctors put in writing 
the reasons why they disagree, the reasons why the treatment that is suggested by the insurer is inappropriate, and the ways in which that treatment is actually going to have a negative impact on you. And it wouldn't hurt for, for there to be something in there that suggests if you force him to do that or her to do that and this happens, then it's on you. So it's very clear that what they are doing is not only inappropriate, but it's going to be harmful and that's going to be on the insurer. Once they have that information, if they decide to force you to go through with it and you decide not to, then you're in a much better position when it comes to bringing a legal Guys, it's just about time for a break. I'm going to give you some contact information just as we get to the uh, the bottom of the show here. Again, still plenty of time for you to call into the show. That's 416-872-1010. We had a text a short time ago. We'll see if I can get to that. It's 71010 as well. And anytime you want to send along an email, it might appear on this show or a future show for sure. Uh, James and tomorrow, always go through them before we go to air. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And just after the break, I got a question from a website called mydisabilityquestions.com. That one's nice because it's free, it's anonymous, and it's searchable as well. So we'll get to that again, mydisabilityquestions.com. As we continue right here with the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. I wouldn't touch you with a what, James? 39 half football. You got it. Got the measurement right. Nicely done. Little piece of Grinch trivia. By the way, not uh, not who you think it is singing that song. It is not Boris Karloff. He simply voiced the Grinch. It's a guy named Thurl Ravenscroft. who's a uh, old time uh, from the Mellow Man back in the 40s. He was a choral singer and a voiceover guy. He did all, a lot of the voices in Disney. But I just thought I'd throw that out there for Christmas time. Thurl Ravenscroft was the guy with the big pipes. Anyway, we're back at it. You can call in anytime now. 416-872-1010. That is the number. Text is 71010 as well. Um, and I did mention just before the break, I just want to get to a question from mydisabilityquestions.com. That uh, website, courtesy of the firm, it's free and anonymous. Anytime you want to ask your questions, they will get answered. It goes as follows. says, if a disability claimant gets a medical report that is not supportive, is it worth getting a second opinion from another doctor or will that look bad to the insurance company? What do you guys think? Well, I, you know, I'm of a couple minds in this. I mean, it, it really depends who the doctor is that's giving the non-supportive report. So if you are only getting treatment from your GP, you're not seeing any specialists, and your GP is being non-supportive, then I don't know what choice you have otherwise, because there's no one else to really turn to. Not that it's necessarily going to help, to be quite frank, but I mean, if you really are disabled and your GP is not being supportive, then by all means, go somewhere else, even just for medical purposes. If your GP is not being supportive of you and you're disabled, then you do need to find someone else. But there are a lot of other scenarios where you might have one particular doctor give you giving you what might be seen in the disability insurance context as non-supportive. In other words, saying that you know perhaps you have... Uh, these symptoms are this particular disorder, but you're not disabled from work. You might have a specialist saying that from one particular scenario, but that doesn't mean that overall you're not disabled from work. So for example, there are many scenarios where we are dealing with people who have multiple issues, multiple things that are contributing to their disability, their inability to return to work. And very often, you're going to have people who have a physical and a mental health issue that they're trying to cope with. And so it may well be the case that you will have perhaps an orthopedic surgeon saying that this person's back injury is 
causing symptoms, but on its own is probably not disabling. And they're not going to comment on the mental health side because that's not where they have expertise. But then you're going to get the psychiatrists who say this person can't return to work. So is having that one medical report that's non-supportive a game changer? No, not necessarily. It may even be the case that, you know, in the same scenario, you have the orthopedic surgeon saying, symptoms but not on its own disabling you have the psychiatrist saying there are symptoms but not on its own disabling and each one is looking at it only within their own sphere but then you have the gp who is sort of the quarterback of your medical care who's able to look at what's happening in all realms and is able to say well neither of these perhaps on their own is disabling but together it's creating a scenario where it's just too much for this person to be able to cope with and overall they are disabled from work and that's perfectly acceptable so it doesn't necessarily mean that just because one particular doctor isn't being supportive in the sense of saying within my own area of expertise this person is not disabled that doesn't mean that you're not going to be entitled to benefits and by all means if there is a scenario where somebody else is going to give you a supportive opinion you should go get it my two cents on this is really more so from the adjuster's perspective. As you both know, I've, I spent a little bit of time working for one of these big, bad insurance companies. And so I'm quite intimately aware of what You're a mean one. <laughs> what they look at and you know what they're considering. And I think that's the component of this, this question around, is it going to look bad to the insurance company? You know, I think the insurers inherently are going to cherry pick the information they want to rely upon to get to the closure of the claim or refusal of the claim. Either way, regardless of whether you've got differential opinions on what's happening from a health perspective, and I agree with James there that, you know, you do want supportive medical, of course, it goes without saying. But in terms of what the adjuster is going to do, you know, whether you've got one or two or three that all say different things, at the end of the day, if there's an opportunity for them to hang their hat on the one opinion that supports their position, which is to not pay your benefits, you can bet that's the one they're going to rely upon. And this, by the way, also goes with the insurer's approach in getting their own medical reviews done by the doctors they've got, you know, on payroll, and they'll just send your medical file over to you know, Joe Schmo doctor. And I say Joe Schmo because sometimes it's not even a specialist. It could just be a generalist for a mental health claim or some other claim to weigh in on whether or not, you know, you are in fact totally disabled. And in, and they may rely on that opinion alone at the exclusion of anything that your own doctors have said. Now, this does not, uh, I don't want anyone hearing this saying, look, then, you know, what's the point? Or perhaps I don't need any medical at all to support the claim. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, you do want to stack that those medical reports to the extent that you can. That support is very, very important. But I'm just simply saying that a lot of these adjusters come at it with a high degree of cynicism. They've got a couple of tools at their disposal. They may just refer to a medical reviewer anyway and focus in on the components of the claim that justify not approving it, regardless of whether or not you've got one or two or three opinions. Let's move on to uh, to Joe, guys, an yeah. email. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. Joe says, I'm really frustrated with the advice I'm getting from my union. I know your firm represents a lot of teachers, so I thought I'd reach out in an email first. My LTD benefits are getting cut off next month because the insurance company is claiming I can work from home doing a totally different job than teaching. The union is saying I need to appeal before I can start a legal claim, but I was also told that I was not likely to be successful with my appeal since working from home is now a real option provided by many employers. My doctors are still supporting I can't work. What should I do? 
Well, I think this one touches on a couple of really key issues. Number one, where do I begin? The appeal part of this, I think, is the one that it really focuses on because I really don't like this idea of unions telling people, especially teachers, that they have to go through the appeal process before they start that legal claim. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so if anyone's getting that advice out there, you know, if and you're a teacher, that, that is not the right approach. You absolutely can bring a legal claim the moment the insurer has said no and has denied your claim or not approved your claim. And so I, if I'm Joe, I, I think that's where I want to begin is to at least have a fulsome consultation with, with one of us or another disability lawyer. Frankly, it doesn't much matter. But this, this idea of the union saying appeal, uh, you know, it just doesn't fly with me because frankly, in our experience, this is the one for the, the teachers in particular takes an inordinate amount of time to come back around on appeals months, sometimes I've seen up to a year before that decision is rendered on appeal as to whether or not someone's claim is going to be approved or denied. And then invariably, it's a denial. And so now you've lost an, an immense amount of time where you're out of funds, you're not working, you're trying to focus on your health, and those benefits are just simply not being paid. And in the midst of all of that, you can see that people either, you know, buckle to the pressure or return back to work when they're not supposed to, or don't even bother asserting their rights because it's been so long since that claim was initially denied. I want to fast track all that. James is of the same view, I can assure you. And sometimes we can resolve these claims within a matter of months. And and we don't go through the appeal process. We start that legal claim right away without delay. And that time frame that people have wasted with the appeal is the time that I can use to actually have the thing resolved. And so that that's the part of this that really, really frustrates me. The other component of it actually harkens back to what I was talking about at the start of the show, about whether or not working from home actually makes sense. And, and you can see that, that sometimes this is the fallback position for a lot of insurers. And the last I checked, teachers actually have to physically work in person, at least the vast majority. I know there's been a whole host of conceptions around online learning and there's other things going on. And and I'm not sure what Joe's specific teaching assignment is, but barring, you know, something exceptional, if it's sort of the, the regular thinking around a teacher, a teacher's in a classroom. And so uh, that part of this analysis also doesn't hold water for me and emboldens me even further that the right answer here for him is to start that legal claim and move forward, especially when he's got the support from his own medical team that he cannot be working at his own occupation. I haven't heard anything from Joe's email that suggests that that's not the phase in which he's in. And that's what the insurer has to look at at that initial couple of years of benefits, and I know most certainly for teachers is the same, is that could Joe actually return back to doing his teaching assignment were it not for his health issues? And so if anyone's out there listening and they're not sure about the advice they're getting from their union, this is why we've got all of the resources that we do. And this is why we champion the idea of actually proceeding with a legal claim because sometimes it's the most efficient, sometimes all the time, it's the most efficient way of getting from point A to Z and getting the insurer to come to the table. James? Just, yeah, yeah, let me just very quickly pipe in here. Um, I just want to add that if you are in a union, there are certain unionized members that are not going to be able to bring a lawsuit. Most can, certainly teachers can. Uh, a lot of nurses, unfortunately, cannot. But if your union is telling you that you have to appeal and you're not sure, give us a call. We can help let you know whether or not that's actually required under your collective bargaining agreement or not. But you want to be very careful because there are collective bargaining agreements which require you to do that. And if that is the case, 
we certainly don't want to discourage you from taking that step if it's actually required. Mostly not, but sometimes it's. That number, guys, any time to reach out to James and Tamar and the team at uh, simple one 821 5900 We're going to go into a short break here. Lots more emails on the way. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And you still got time to pick up a phone live and call us here. Join the show, 416-872-1010. And we will continue. This is the Disability Loss Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Welcome back. It is one fifty on Saturday afternoon. Before we move on here with more emails and more questions, uh, Jordan, your dad, Larry's big birthday shout out for a pal Jordan. We don't know how old Jordan is, but he listens to the show, so I'm assuming he's probably over the age of three to understand most of what we talk about <laughs> here, but uh, on behalf of myself and James and Tamar, happy birthday, big fella. I hope you don't get ripped off for presents, because he's really nice. He's pretty far away from Christmas, right? I got friends who are born on the 25th, and they just get smoked every year. No matter how you slice it, you're getting half the number of gifts. You just are, because they combine the both of them. It's not fair. Totally. My brother-in-law. That's him. No way, December really? 25, right on the nose. Wah, and my niece wah. is on the December 20th, so yeah, you know, but we carve out time. <laughs> it's only fair. <laughs> Two gifts. Oh, man, it has to be. Uh, so, yeah, happy birthday, Jordan. Enjoy your uh, enjoy your weekend, pal. MyDisabilityQuestions.com is where we're going to go to. It says, if someone doesn't want to speak to their adjuster and is dodging the calls and emails, will the insurance company just cut them off? Sooner or later, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're going to they're gonna cut them off anyway. But this is just giving them a good excuse. Now, I, you know, if you are intentionally avoiding the insurer and you're not responding to emails or phone calls or what have you, then yeah, they're going to do it. And they're going to be justified at a certain point in doing that. But there's another scenario as well, where somebody has anxiety around communications with the insurer or with anyone for that matter. And in that scenario, as long as you're being reasonable about what limitations you're putting on communications, then the insurer ought to comply. They won't always, but they ought to. So for example, if you are, you know, if you have anxiety and Taking phone calls from the insurer, especially if your adjuster is somewhat aggressive, causes your anxiety to be exacerbated, then it's quite reasonable for you to request that communications be done in writing. The insurer won't always abide by that, but sometimes they will. And if you're not picking up the phone, but you've told them that you don't want to continue having phone calls, that you will communicate by email, and they're not listening to you and they're continuing to call, then you know is that justified if they cut you off? No, almost certainly it isn't. But is it going to stop them from cutting you off? Well, unfortunately, probably won't either. So the long and the short of it is you have to at least make reasonable efforts to communicate with your insurer. That doesn't mean that you have to respond to emails within 10 minutes and you have to be available for every single phone call. But if they do call or if they do email, then you have to make an effort to return their call and be reasonably available at some point in the near future. So if you are purposely avoiding that, yeah, you're going to get cut off and it's probably going to be worn. Tamar? Well, I actually just recently settled a matter uh, that had a compliance issue like this. And so I, I, I totally agree in terms of, look, there is that duty for a claimant to participate in the insurer's efforts to adjudicate their claim. And I think that tipping point is that question of reasonableness. And in the situation of my client, it actually was not reasonable. I mean, he had very severe mental health conditions. The insurer was very well aware of that. Uh, he was struggling to access treatment. And there was a real disconnect on, you know, whose responsibility it was, when, and so on. And it all sort of came to a head at some point when they had actually asked him to participate in a rehabilitation treatment plan. So a little bit different than I think this question 
in terms of emails and regular phone calls and that sort of thing. This actually had to do specifically with his compliance with attending, you know, the various appointments they had set up for him for treatment, quote unquote treatment, because it wasn't actually specifically with a psychiatrist, but, you know, other treatment that in essence would have enabled him, at least from the insurance company's perspective, to get him on the path to return back to work. And in the midst of all of this, he ends up getting COVID and the insurer was insisting that the uh, appointments occur in person when he himself was coordinating with the treatment provider to pivot, right, naturally to to either do it virtually or do it over the phone uh, until, you know, he was out of the isolation period. And because there had been so much history with him and the insurer, the adjuster just decided to pull the plug. It was sort of this idea of three strikes are out and it just did not fly. And I can tell you, at least at a high level, that it didn't fly in our negotiations with the insurer in the sense that the insurer did come to the table and we did successfully resolve the claim even when there was a compliance issue. So the long and short of it is, is that yes, you do want to cooperate with the efforts of the insurer. If those efforts are not, you know, if the things that they are asking or the manner in which you're being treated is not reasonable, it is actually causing you further health issues and exacerbation, then no, then no, that is not correct. And if it does lead to the closure of your claim and they're not on solid ground to do it, then I can tell you that not only myself, but other disability lawyers and the courts have said that that's not a sufficient basis upon which an insurer can cut off an otherwise legitimate claim. George is our email. Let's get this one done before we leave, guys. Says, I suffered a mental breakdown last year due to my boss and all the extra work and stress I had at work. I had some trouble getting my short-term disability benefits approved, but once I did, I managed to transition to long-term with the support of my family, doctor, and psychologist. I've been on a gradual return-to-work plan for the past few months. I was getting paid for LTD and my salary, but before I was able to get to full-time, I was fired. This triggered me all over again, and I'm back to massive depression and anxiety. My doctors advise the insurance company this, but the insurer is refusing my LTD claim. Now, what should I do? Well, I think that in a situation like this, it's a tough one, but it's one that if the primary issue is the mental health conditions, then I think the starting point has to be the disability insurer. But this again touches on this idea of ensuring that you've got the right legal team and, and individuals on your side, George, that can talk you through both a potential claim against the employer for the termination and the timing of the termination and a claim against the disability insurer. And when you've got two possibilities, two avenues, the last thing I want individuals to do is choose one path at the expense of the other. In At our firm, we're going to evaluate both sides of this and we're going to come up with a strategy that makes the most sense that ultimately leads to the best compensation as well for George. And in my mind, when he describes this difficulty around resuming full-time hours and duties in a graduated return to work plan you know i think that's really where my focus is not only because you know i mo- i mostly focus on disability law but also because you know you're going to have a hard time then closing that door if you're just focusing entirely on the fact that you were terminated it's clear that the termination would have reaggravated and re-triggered health issues that's not surprising and so george is going to need a period of time of recovery and further treatment and the fact that he hadn't resumed full-time hours and duties yet likely suggests that he was getting probably still some disability benefits for a period of time from the insurer and now 
is in essence having to deal with a recurrence claim. That's mm-hmm. what these policies are there for. And so he should absolutely be able to access long-term disability benefits, especially if he's in a put in a position where he can't be working regardless of if, if whether or not he's job attached. I think that actually is a secondary piece of this in my mind is if the doctors are saying you can't work even if you had a job, uh, then the answer is to start with that disability claim. James, final words on this? I've got nothing to add tomorrow. That was a very thorough response. And I think it is, again, worth repeating that it's really important, especially when you have issues that are touching on both disability and employment, that you have representation that understands both sides of it, how they interact with each other, and is able to represent you in a way that's going to best situate you going forward, not necessarily in one versus the other, but overall. Guys, with that, we're just about uh, just about done for this show. Any final thoughts as we uh, wrap up this uh, this year, James? Moving forward, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, or whatever else you celebrate or don't celebrate. Make it a good one. Same goes for you, I guess, tomorrow, huh? Thank you. And and we're around, by the way. If anyone needs to reach us, I actually had a call with someone this week saying, you know, it's my bad. My benefits aren't going to get cut off Christmas time, right? And I'm like. Ah. <laughs> I've seen it all, folks. So we're only a phone call away if necessary. You bet. With that, guys, we wish you a uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and all the best. We're going to be back here just uh, after Christmas and the New Year. So hang tight. Keep uh, reaching out and contacting Tamar and James and the team anytime. Again, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address. And you can always go to mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you in the New Year right here on the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Boys and girls.